Well, good morning. Um, so we're on week seven of uh, the history of the beginnings of the New Testament Christian church. Um, we've gone through uh, sort of setting the stage, the historiography behind uh, or, or, or the method and motives of writing history in the first century AD and BC. Uh, we did go through the intertestamental period, sort of uh, setting the stage as far as the historical context, um, the actors and players behind uh, all of the events surrounding first century Palestine. In the last couple of weeks, we've been going through uh, taking a look at the sources of the life and ministry of Jesus, namely uh, the Gospels. We've uh, the first week we went through uh, the book of Matthew. Last week we went through the book of Mark um, from a historical perspective. Uh, we haven't really gotten into the, uh, the, the theology or anything behind uh, any of those sources. We were strictly looking at um, the, the, the authorship, the time of uh, authorship, uh, the literary themes and motifs, uh, and we'll continue to do that this week with uh, the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but just to uh, very briefly summarize um, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Matthew, of course, was written to Jews in Jerusalem. And I made the proposition, uh, number one, made two propositions for Matthew. Number one, that Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, uh, which is a controversial uh, statement nowadays. Uh, and number two, that Matthew deserves its place in, uh, as the first gospel of the New Testament, and that it was written first. Uh, last week, we talked about the book of Mark. Uh, Mark being written in Rome uh, while Peter was preaching there uh, in the 60s uh, AD uh, was the second gospel in my, in my proposition, um, and that Mark was uh, the author of the gospel of Mark. Again, uh, somewhat controversial topic nowadays. And one of the things we talked about in the, in the discussion of those two books in particular was the priority between uh, a Markan authorship, a Markan priority, or a Matthean priority. Who, who wrote the first gospel, Mark or Matthew? And uh, we, we, we've seen over the discussion of those two gospels how uh, historical critics and text, textual critics today uh, will uh, go through uh, acrobatics to prove or to uh, at least provide any shred of evidence that Matthew and Mark were both written post 70 AD. Uh, the reason behind that is, and, and they will freely admit this, uh, the reason they, they must show in their perspective that these Gospels are written post 70 AD is because both Matthew and Mark are so explicit recording Jesus' words about the destruction of the temple. And when Titus uh, came into Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed the temple, leaving no stone unturned, uh, it uh, fulfilled Jesus' prophecy about uh, that. And then from the historical critic's perspective, uh, there's no way that Jesus could have predicted so clearly the destruction of the temple unless these uh, gospel writers wrote it after the fact. Well. Uh, all of the best evidence uh, shows that uh, indeed Matthew uh, or Mark, whichever, I don't really care, uh, both of those were written pre-70 AD. And from my perspective, the historical critics really shouldn't have a problem with that um, because uh, the, I mean, the evidence is overwhelming from the, from the manuscript tradition 
as well as uh, the testimony of the church fathers uh, that uh, these gospels were written in 50, 60, 65, somewhere around there. Um, but uh, I'm stressing that point because we'll see today uh, just how uh, aggressive and how uh, mal malicious, I would say, uh, textual critics and historical critics can be when it comes to their approach to the New Testament. So we'll talk about the Gospel of Luke. And unlike Matthew and Mark, I'm not going to make the proposition that Luke was necessarily written pre-70 AD. I don't know. I, I don't know that uh, we can accurately uh, date when the Gospel of Luke was written. Um, if it was written post-70 AD, it probably wasn't written too long afterwards. Um, but uh, as we know, Luke uh, freely acknowledges his dependence on other sources um, and uh, he was in a, a companion of Paul. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more closely as we go through. Um, but before we uh, get into the actual lesson, uh, we have our Old Testament reading and our New Testament reading. Can I have a volunteer to read Isaiah 61, 1 through 2? John? Right there. Um, 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Very good. Thank you. Uh, Luke 1, 1 through 4. Anyone got it? Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's open with prayer, please. Our Heavenly Father, we uh, are coming before you to, to learn more about your word and uh, how you've transmitted it to us for, for our knowledge, for our uh, appreciation of your glory. We pray that we would uh, see your word with, uh, with open eyes, that we would see uh, your awesomeness, your sovereignty, uh, your, your goodness, and how uh, gracious you've been to us in the transmission of your word. Uh, and the uh, manifestation of, uh, of your son and his sacrifice. We pray that we would, uh, throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, uh, in, in every aspect of our lives, uh, appreciate all that you've done for us and see you uh, for all your glory. We ask this uh, through Jesus. Amen. Um, so this is Mark, this is Luke, and I, I will consider it the last of the synoptic gospels. Uh, and remember, the synoptic gospels uh, provide a synopsis of uh, the overview of the ministry, the life and teachings of Jesus. Um, and, and a critical, from a critical perspective, the idea of a synoptic gospel mean, uh, means that they approach the subject from a same general lens. All right? And the idea behind synoptic gospels from a critical perspective is that they are dependent on the same source, or they are looking through that same lens, a same source. Um, th there's a, a tons of books written on what are the actual sources of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because we know, we look at them, and there's obviously 
similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You just, there's no way around it. The, the wording is uh, identical in some places, uh, but there are also d differences. And so the question that uh, people have been struggling with for the past two centuries has been, where did they get their information? So I, I'm not going to, to get too deep into that because we, we talked about it a little bit with Matthew uh, about where he could have gotten his information. As a disciple of Jesus, he could have gotten his information directly from Jesus himself. Uh, with Mark, uh, Mark being a, a companion of Peter, he could have recorded Peter's stump speech, his sermon to uh, the Romans or the, the sermon that he gave all over uh, the Roman Empire in the, in the 50s and 60s. And he could have, that could have been his source. It's not, I'm, I'm only saying this to, to uh, emphasize that it's not necessarily the case. From a purely historical perspective, they are not necessarily dependent upon a common written source or what the critics will call the Q document. All right, there is a, if, if you've looked at the synoptic comparisons or the synoptic problem is what they call it, you will often... 90% uh, of the time, run into a proposition from these critics that will say Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all dependent upon, or excuse me, Matthew and Luke were dependent upon this hypothetical document called Q. All right. Now, no one's ever been able to produce the Q document. No one's been able. No one's ever been able to produce any even reference from a church father, from a historian, no one's ever been able to produce a reference to a Q document. It is completely hypothetical. And uh, it is, it's a solution. It's, it's a solution to the problem of, well, Matthew looks like he's borrowing from Mark. Luke looks like he's borrowing from Mark, but there's obviously differences. So where would they have gotten the other information? And so they come up with this other source. All right, it's, it's purely hypothetical. Now, and I'm, I'm bringing this up because when we come to Luke, Luke admits, or unlike Matthew, who could have gotten his, his information directly from Jesus as an apostle, as a disciple of Jesus, Mark could have gotten his information directly from Peter as a, uh, as a companion of Peter, accompanying him all over the world. Luke freely acknowledges his dependence on other sources. All right, and Luke has been called uh, the historian uh, of, uh, of, the old, of the New Testament, of the Gospels, and I think rightly so, um, because of his concern with a historical approach. Matthew and, and, uh, Matthew and Mark are not necessarily concerned with a historical approach uh, in, in the sense that we think of it. All right? We, we in, in Western civilization today have a, an idea of what a historical approach is. And Luke, I think, more closely resembles a historical approach from our perspective than Matthew and Mark do. This doesn't mean that Matthew and Mark were uh, uh, deficient or uh, wrong in their approach by any means. Uh, they have a different audience. Matthew was writing to uh, the Jews who have a, a different receptacle, uh, historical receptacle than, uh, than we do. Um, and likewise, Mark writing to the Romans had a different historical receptacle, meaning how they inferred information from what was being implied uh, mattered. How, how, the, how the message was communicated mattered. And it wouldn't necessarily make sense if we, as uh, 21st century um, Western civilization uh, communicators, would communicate a history to a first century Jew, it wouldn't mean the same thing to them. They would, they would interpret that, and, and why are you telling it like that? We're used to hearing history like this. And so remember, and this is what we talked about the first week, 
different audiences with different languages in different times infer things differently. And so it's, it, this is important in reconciling why it might appear that Matthew conflicts with Luke or Mark conflicts with Matthew uh, in their approach to communicating the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> now, Luke, according to tradition, is uh, both... Oh, I forgot to mention my two propositions. My apologies. All right, number one, the first proposition is that Luke is the author of the Gospel of Luke. And again, this is not as controversial as uh, Matthew and Mark being the author of their respective Gospels, but we'll see. It is, it is a little bit controversial. Uh, the second is that Luke's message of salvation, recorded in his Gospel, Luke's message of salvation had a particular implication to his audience and that his Greek audience inferred something about salvation that was particular to them. And we, hopefully we will see that. Um, <clears throat> now in, in uh, Matthew and Mark, there are kind of internal clues about uh, who wrote the gospel, but in uh, the, uh, the gospel of Luke, dealing with the, uh, the question of authorship is a, a little bit more complicated um, there have been questions raised about the authorship of Luke since the, eight, since the 19th century uh, that have required uh, or orthodox biblical scholars to actually you know, come up with a good evidence as to why uh, the tradition shows that Luke is the actual gospel of Luke. Uh, and it's been a little bit tougher, uh, just as, as background, it's been a little bit tougher to show that uh, Luke is uh, indeed the gospel writer of the gospel of Luke and Acts. Um, be, it, we saw with Matthew and Mark, uh, Papias and Irenaeus and uh, a whole bunch of other witnesses in the first and second, or excuse me, second and third century, all agreed that Matthew and Mark were these authors. It's, it's not quite as clear when it comes to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, internally, it's anonymous. There is no, I, Luke, am writing to you, most excellent Theophilus. That's not what it says. He addresses the most excellent Theophilus. Uh, but he's not giving his uh, signature at the bottom or at the, at the top of the page. Um, and in the, uh, in the epistles, in Paul's epistles, there's no reference to Luke writing, uh, Luke writing a gospel as, uh, as well. Um, but there is a case uh, in the negative to affirm that the tradition, that, uh, affirm the tradition that Luke, the traditional Luke, was in fact the author. Um, we saw in Mark, it wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense for uh, church fathers or Christian conspirators to ascribe uh, authorship to Mark. He just wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't a, a disciple, one of the original 12 disciples. If they really wanted to forge a document and ascribe authorship, they would have given it to Peter. All right? But they gave it to Mark because Mark, Mark wrote it. Uh, the same can be said for the Gospel of Luke. Why would you, if you wanted to forge a document, why would you ascribe the authorship to such a minor character as Luke? Why not ascribe it to Paul? Or why not ascribe it to Philip or anyone else? Someone who was among the original 12. And so and that's not a conclusive proof, but it, it does make you ask the question, why wouldn't they? If it were a forgery, if it were, why give it to Luke, who is, you know, as we'll see, such a, a, a minor character? Um, <clears throat> now, uh, it is important that we establish that Luke, the, the author of the Gospel of Luke, and the author of the Acts of the Apostles are the same person. 
Um, I don't know of anyone who would, uh, who would challenge that. I don't know of any historical critic or textual critic that would challenge that the author of Luke is different than the author of the Acts of the Apostles. I think it's very clear in the introduction to Acts that the same writer is writing to Theophilus and continuing the Gospel of Luke. Now, if we establish that and we, we accept that the uh, Acts of the Apostles is written by the same author of the Gospel of Luke, we can infer uh, authorship based on what is called the we passages. Has anyone ever, anyone ever heard of the we passages in Acts? The we passages are uh, accounts of uh, the Acts of the Apostles, and specifically uh, Paul's journeys uh, across the world, and the author records, we went here, and we went there, and we went there, whereas throughout the rest of the book of the Acts, he, he refers in the third person, they, they, and he, they. But when, he, when these we passages come up, it's obvious, if you take the, the text at face value, that the author of the book of Acts is going along with Paul uh, on these journeys. Uh, and these passages are in Acts 16, 10 through 17, Acts 25 through 16, uh, Acts 21, 1 through 18, Acts 27, 1 through 28. Excuse me, Acts 27, 1 through Acts 28, 16. Um, now, if we compare these we passages uh, with the corresponding letters written by Paul, the epistles of Paul, uh, those latter epistles that were written from Rome, and we see in Colossians, we see in Timothy, and we see in Philemon, uh, Paul's uh, inclusion of someone named Luke. And there are others that he includes along with him. But, you know, if, if, if it were Epaphras, it couldn't be Epaphras. It couldn't be uh, Barnabas. It couldn't be any of these other ones. By process of elimination, this is how people have determined Luke's authorship, besides tradition, besides uh, church tradition. Uh, people have determined Luke's authorship by process of elimination. Paul references Luke being with me on this place. And so you compare that with the book of Acts. And, yes, Luke was at uh, uh, Rome with Paul during this time. Or Luke was at... Uh, uh, Ephesus with Rome during this time. And so they've been able to uh, discern that Luke, based on process of elimination, that Luke was the author of the Acts of... Luke was the guy writing the we passages. All right? And if we can discern that Luke was the one writing the we passages, then we know that Luke also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So we went through a huge uh, dozens and dozens of years of study uh, just to prove what everyone already knew that Luke was the gospel writer of Luke. All right. So, but uh, tradition is, is more easily torn down and built up, and uh, textual critics have uh, challenged uh, authenticity every way they can, and it's been up to uh, defenders of the faith to affirm the traditions of the church, and in this case, I think they did a, an excellent job doing that based on uh, the internal evidence, uh, as scant as it is, uh, in, the, in the Acts of the Apostles and the Gospel of Luke. Um, so this is still an argument from negation, uh, and our reliance of Luke as the author uh, rests not only on that, but on the traditions of the post-apostolic age. Now, I, I will just say as a parenthesis, if, it, if there were irrefutable evidence that came up uh, that uh, someone else wrote 
the, the Gospel of Luke, say Barnabas or Silas or something like that, if, the, if there, someone were to, to show that, that wouldn't negate the inspiration of the Gospel by any means. All right? The inspiration is absolutely contained. It's not like you know, the, the Holy Spirit said, only Luke can write this down. I mean, that was never, that was never the implication of, uh, of the Gospel itself or the, uh, the Church Fathers in the post-apostolic age. Um, so now there's a, there's a hypothesis out there, and I think it's a good one, based on what we know about Luke, him accompanying Paul. Just as we saw with the Gospel of Mark, it's being a record of Peter's sermon. It is likely that Luke's Gospel contains elements of Paul's standard sermon to the Gentiles. Um, obviously, from the introduction, uh, from the introduction to the gospel that Ariadne read. We know that he was dependent on other sources. This wasn't a simple transcription like Mark could have been. But uh, if, we, if we know that Luke, being the companion of Paul, was the author of this gospel, um, it's uh, absolutely the case that he would have been influenced by the apostle Paul. And that's important because uh, the transmission of the gospels you have in Matthew and John, obvious eyewitnesses, obvious disciples of Jesus. When it comes to Mark, if we affirm the hypothesis that he is recording Peter's words or Peter's sermon or Peter's ideas, then we are affirming that he, and he as well is recording an eyewitness account to, uh, uh, to the record of the Gospels. The same with Luke. If Luke is recording Paul's sermon or Paul's words or Paul's ideas, then he is recording a commissioned apostle's account. All right? um, it, it's not like he's just some <coughs> random guy writing a gospel. All right? he's, he's under the supervision of the apostle Paul, who has a direct commission from Jesus Christ to spread the gospel throughout the world. And so it, it, the, the claim has been made that why should we listen to Luke? He wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. He doesn't know anything about uh, the life of Jesus. He wasn't there. But if, he is, if he's recording the gospel under the supervision of a directly commissioned apostle, Paul, then it's a different story, just as it, just as it was with Mark. Um, as I mentioned, uh, the uh, authorship now, now that uh, textual scholars have gone through such great lengths to show that it couldn't be anyone else but Luke, uh, the, the, the hypothesis that Luke was the author is not really that controversial anymore, uh, and it, it, you're, you're hard-pressed to find even a critical scholar that will uh, go to such lengths as to try to show a different author. But uh, there are still some holdout scholars that are not impressed with the critical consensus. Uh, has anyone ever heard of Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman. All right, he's kind of a kind of a pop textual critic. He's, the, he's the, the critic of the Bible that goes on CNN, that CNN calls up and says, hey, we want you to talk bad about the Bible. Come, come get on camera. And so he, he gets a lot of media. He writes a lot of books. Uh, he's a smart guy, absolutely. Um, but he, he, is, he has a vendetta against the authenticity of the Bible. Um, and he is not impressed with the critical consensus uh, and he's among those uh, few scholars that insists that Luke's authorship can be dismissed, and he does so in the following manner. Number one, 
you have to dismiss outright the authenticity of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. So you have to accept as a presupposition. In order to disprove the authenticity of Luke, you have to accept that the epistle to the Colossians is a forgery. All right, that's a big presupposition. It is. Uh, because in uh, Colossians, Paul references Luke's being there with him, and you compare that with the act, uh, Acts of the Apostles, and you're able to find out that it's Luke. Uh, the second is that insisting that the Luke in Philemon is a different Luke than the one that was with him described in, in the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, again, he had, there's no way to show that, but he, you accept it as a premise. And then the other is to uh, propose that there is a contradictory theology based on Paul's sermons in the book of Acts and Paul's sermons at his, or his, his uh, teachings in the epistles. Um, by insisting that these, the, these theologies are different, Ehrman concludes that these we passages in the book of Acts are actual, actual uh, forgeries. Like someone put them in later. There's, there's absolutely, I'm mentioning this, it doesn't make any sense, trust me. I sat there for probably five or six hours going back to his sources, whatever sources I could find, trying to dis discern what in the heck he was talking about. Uh, but it's so convoluted. The, 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 the acrobatics that critics will employ in order to uh, assert any kind of forgery or any kind of inauthenticity in the Bible uh, is, is astounding. Um, and, and so you, you have to accept a whole bunch of things in order to accept that these we passages are forgeries. And I'm only mentioning this, it doesn't really matter because we know that Luke was the author of the, of the Gospel of Luke and of Acts. Just to show that there are uh, critics out there who will go to any lengths they can to disprove the authenticity of the Bible. And when we started this study, my, you know, one of my main propositions that I'm trying to get through as we go through this is the, the proposition that the New Testament is a basically reliable historical document. Meaning that we can accept it at its base, at its root, we can accept its value as a historical document and its authenticity. But there are, there, you know, not everyone agrees with that. But I hope that as we go through this, we will see, we will continue to see that uh, there's no reason we should not affirm the basic reliability of the New Testament as a historical source. All right. And, you know, of course, it's, it's also inspired by the Holy Spirit. But from a strictly critical perspective, um, I'm discussing these, these critics and these uh, oppositions to the authenticity uh, of the scripture just because I think it's important that we know they're out there, number one, and what it is that they're saying, um, and hopefully uh, what our defense of the authenticity of the scripture is. Um, now, Ehrman's uh, assertion that the theology in Acts, Paul's theology in Acts, and Paul's theology in uh, his epistles that they're different is an interesting proposition. Um, and it's actually, uh, it, it's better than his, it's a better proposition than his uh, assertion that Colossians is a forgery and that uh, uh, Philemon, that's not the same Luke. Uh, but uh, we have to remember that Luke's record of Paul's sermons in Acts, who was Luke writing to? Does anyone know? Theophilus. That's, now, yes, he's, he's dedicating the, the epistle or the, the gospel and the record of the Acts 
uh, to Theophilus. But it was standard practice in, for, uh, for classical historians to write a book, general book, but dedicate it to a single person, even if they had a broader audience in mind. So you're asking what group? Correct, yes. Greek. Yes. Very good. The common consensus is that Luke was writing to a Greek audience, or one that was trained in classical uh, ideas, uh, Hellenic ideas. Um, now, who was uh, Paul preaching to in a lot of these sermons in Acts? Where, where was he going most of the time on his journeys? Were, was he pre in, in the record? Of, yes, correct. And, and synagogues. He was going to a lot of synagogues, too. But was he preaching to, do we see Paul giving doctrine or theology to converts, to Christian converts in the, in the book of Acts, other than his interactions with Peter and you know, the other apostles? Do we see Paul's interaction with people already converted to Christianity in the book of Acts very often? Where? Where? <laughs> Most of what we see uh, in, in the book of Acts is Paul's sermons to unconverted or, or to, uh, to Gentiles, to, to pagans, to people that aren't Christians. All right? We see Paul's sermons on uh, Areopagus, for example. Uh, he, he's, not, he's not talking to a Christian audience. All right? Now, in Paul's epistles, who is he largely writing to? The church. Christians, right? People that are already converted. Uh, I, I can't think of any of his epistles, other than maybe some of the passages in Corinth, uh, in Corinthians, where he's talking to uh, some snakes in the grass that are in the church. But uh, in large part, Paul is writing to converted Christians in his epistles, whereas his, the record of his sermons in the Acts are to Gentiles, unconverted Gentiles, and unconverted Jews. So, so the distinction being that while in Acts there's a lot of interaction with Paul and What's documented the sermons, the sermons right. are who he was talking to. Correct. And that's, that's, that's the objection to his theology. Is that Paul's sermons don't talk about justification by faith in the book of Acts. But look how prevalent it is in his epistles. Well, um, and, and, and there are uh, huge volumes written on this. Uh, the reconciliation between those is, you know, the, the, the basic reconciliation is that in the book of Acts, Paul's theology, or the record of Paul's theology by Luke, uh, being more basic, you know, basically just preaching the gospel. Here, Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he was resurrected, and he's the savior of mankind. It's more basic than you know Paul's uh, epistles. You know, Paul's epistles are very um, they, they are a deep dive into the theology or, or the uh, the doctrines uh, of Jesus. And so I, I don't think there's any problem with Paul's theology being more basic in the book of, in the book of Acts because his audience was different. All right. It was also written as a historical book. It wasn't intended as a... Yeah, it's not Paul's autograph, you know, unlike his epistles. You know, and so Luke is not recording word for... We know that Luke is not recording word for word everything, um, but he's summarizing. And it, I think that, just as you said, it's... Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a summary account of what Paul is preaching there uh, in Areopagus and in uh, Antioch and in Rome and all of these different places. So now all of that is to say that while the objection is an interesting one, that Luke, uh, Luke's theology in uh, Acts is different than Paul's theology in the epistles, 
uh, that, and other scholars have gone to great, great lengths to show that there is no problem. Uh, I don't believe that there is a problem. So Luke writing to the Greeks um, is, is important because there is in the book of uh, Luke and in the book of Acts a uh, pervading theme about uh, um, salvation. I think I just, yes, there we go. I put my, my page down uh, too soon. Um, salvation. Luke alone records, or Luke more than any other gospel writer, records the idea in the words salvation. Um, he alone uses the term redeemer. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip over things, so I'm already, I'm already running out of time. <clears throat> All right. Now, Luke was a, 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 an historian. He's writing to a Greek audience who is very familiar with classical historiography. All right, the understanding that this Greek audience, that this is a Greek audience familiar with classical historiography and classical ideas is important because when uh, Luke is uh, bringing up this idea of salvation, it had a very specific uh, implication to this Greek audience. Um, we talked about in the first couple of weeks uh, the idea of what's called anacyclosis, uh, which is that, uh, that wheel of politics that goes from uh, kingship to aristocracy to democracy back to monarchy, and you just keep going around and around and around. Uh, the idea of a circular uh, motion in history was not limited to politics in classical Greece in 4th century BC and onward. Uh, the idea of a uh, of a circular uh, revolution uh, applied to pretty much every aspect of classical life, uh, and one of the, the one of the, uh, the ideas of Greek religion after the uh, you know Homer's theology had faded and uh, the idea of Hades and the Elysium and these uh, mythological gods had started to fade, they became sort of the, the thing of antiquity, uh, one of the uh, religious ideas proposed by the Greeks was the idea of reincarnation. Now, they had a specific word for it. Their word for it was metempsychosis. All right, and that, that word is on your paper if you see it there. Uh, and the idea was that uh, as, a, as a, this is, again, this is a Greek idea, it's not a Roman one. This is a Greek idea, and, and it's important to remember that because when we consider that Luke is speaking to a Greek audience, the idea was that you go through life and uh, once you die, you are reincarnated uh, based on uh, your, the, the action. It sounds very much like Jainism or Hinduism, the idea of reincarnation contained therein. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that reincarnation was not strictly a Hindu thing. It was actually a very prevalent idea in classical Greece. Um, and so the, there was, a, there was a, an, an existential uh, despair among the Greeks that no matter what they did, unless they were perfect, no matter what they did, they were going to be reincarnated back into a being only to suffer the existence of this world once again. And there was no escape from it. And this is the idea of the wheel. All right, one of the, one of the uh, uh, Greeks uh, called the, the existence of life 
re becoming reincarnated and going through life again, the weary wheel uh, of existence. And there were, there, they had a, a desire to escape from this weary wheel at, at, at any cost. Now there was, uh, in theory, there was an escape, but it required a, leading a perfect life. And once you were able to lead a perfect life, you would become uh, divine, you would become your own god. But they also understood, the Greeks understood that this was practically impossible because um, Empedocles would tell us that whenever man sins, he violates a covenant and wanders from the blessed ones for three times countless years, being born throughout the time as all kinds of mortal forms, exchanging one hard way of life for another, for the force of air pursues him into the sea and the, sp and the sea spits him out onto the earth's surface. Earth casts him into the rays of the blazing sun and the sun into the eddies of the air. One takes him from another and all abhor him. All right, this is a result of man's sin. All right, so the, it's, it's fascinating to me that even though uh, you know, Greek culture was completely antithetical to Jewish monotheism, we see uh, hints of accurate theology spread throughout you know, from time to time in classical Greece, in Rome, uh, even in Hinduism, you a comparative religions class, you can always, not always, but oftentimes you can find uh, what, I can, what I think are influences of Jewish monotheism or uh, the, true, the true religion of the Old Testament because everything came from Noah, right? I mean, everyone all over the world had to come from Noah at some point, so it, it doesn't surprise me that you find hints of monotheism in ancient religions like Hinduism. Uh, you find hints of monotheism in classical Greece. You find hints of the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, uh, the total the inability of man to uh, be his own savior uh, in uh, religions like uh, ancient Greece. Now, um, back to the word savior. Um, or salvation. The highest state of salvation from this sorrowful, weary wheel was a divine union with the gods. Specifically, in the Greek perspective, the supreme God, which is positioned outside our ideas of time and space. All right, this is starting to sound a little bit familiar and a little bit uh, reflective of the transcendent uh, sovereignty of the, uh, of, of the God of the Christian faith. Um, again, this sort of salvation was impossible and incomprehensible. Um, now, the word itself, savior or salvation, had uh, a, a very specific meaning, a, a very divine meaning to the Greek audience. Greek kings like Ptolemy, uh, Menander, um, Antiochus I, they added to their name a cognomen which was Antiochus I Soter, or Ptolemy I Soter. Anyone familiar with the word Soter? We get our, we get our word soteriology from it, which is the doctrine of salvation. All right? Uh, these cognomens were given to these Greek kings these, as Ptolemy I, Savior. Menander, Savior. All right? Uh, Antiochus I, saviors. That's what soter meant. And the idea was that these uh, kings, these Greek kings, were superhuman. They were able, they alone, were able to rescue the people 
from the sorrowful, weary wheel of existence and to bring them hope uh, beyond the despair of their current life. All right, that was the idea of a Greek Savior. And so when we see in the Gospel of Luke, he emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the Savior. All right, he's in, in the book of Acts as well. And uh, Paul's, the, uh, Paul's epistles reflect this as well. All right. it's, I think it's easy for us uh, in the 21st century to hear the word Savior and kind of uh, assume, uh, imp uh, assume impl its implication is uh, basic. I, I, I don't mean that in a bad way because you know, Jesus being the Savior is a, is a wonderful thing, but it did have a specific implication to this Greek audience. Uh, it meant something to them beyond uh, Jesus just being, uh, like it was to the Romans, uh, the Son of God. Uh, or to Matthew, the Messiah, and in Matthew's audience, the Messiah. The idea of a savior to a Greek audience had a very specific implication um, that would have resonated with a Greek audience in a way that Matthew's gospel wouldn't have, or in a way that Mark's gospel to the Romans wouldn't have. Now, I consider this to be extremely important. Number one, because I affirm the authenticity of the Bible. I believe that Luke's gospel is true. I believe that Matthew's gospel is true. And I believe that Mark's gospel is true. And I believe that God's, John, John's gospel is true. But remember when we talked about Greek civilization and how absolutely antithetical it was to the Jewish culture. In, in, every, in every facet, uh, in, in, in politics, in, uh, in, the, in theology, um, in their... Uh, Morality, Greek culture was seen at complete odds. Like there was, there could never be any reconciliation between a Jewish culture and a Greek culture. They fought for hundreds and hundreds of years because they could not reconcile because they were at complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, Judaism is an objective. Uh, Greek culture is subjective. Uh, it has no idea of absolute truth, whereas the Jewish religion has an idea of absolute truth. Uh, and so this is important because I think it would have been a Herculean task for a Jewish gospel to resonate with Greek culture. And Jesus found a way, right? <laughs> uh, the, the author of the Gospel of Luke found a way uh, to, res to resonate Jesus' message with a, a Greek culture. And I'm not saying he made anything up, don't get me wrong. But the idea of salvation sort of transcends uh, the differences between the Jewish religion, the Jewish philosophy, the Jewish worldview, and the Greek worldview. When uh, Luke and Paul are preaching to the Gentiles, the Greek Gentiles, about the message of salvation and how uh, Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, uh, is allowing people to escape from this weary wheel of existence. That applies both to the Jews and to the Greeks. Not that the Jews believed in reincarnation, but there was, this, we, there was still a sense of despair because of the total depravity and the fall of mankind that was common between Jews and the Greeks. And so when uh, Paul and uh, Luke are using this, this very specific term, salvation, do a word study. You'll see that Luke uses it way more than anyone else combined. Uh, it, it has a meaning that, uh, that helps to reconcile, um, and for my, in my opinion, it helps to reconcile the chasm of differences between Jewish culture and the Gentile culture. 
Uh, and the, when uh, Paul continues his theology and, and speaking with the, uh, with the Roman church, there is common ground, the, excuse me, the Greek, the Gentile church, there is common ground that now the founder of Christianity, Jesus the Jew, uh, there's common ground between uh, these completely antithetical cultures. And now, because of that, because of the message of salvation, uh, because of this reconciliation between these antithetical cultures, uh, the gospel is able to go throughout the world and is not confined strictly to uh, the Jewish people. And that was a very, a very uh, important concern of Paul. Um, if we see at the end of Acts, all right, Acts, uh, Paul says to his audience, let me make sure I got this right, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and you will indeed hear but never understand. He's talking to Jews now. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Then Paul says, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. All right. So the message of salvation, of course, is for the Jews, but it has a very specific meaning for the Gentiles as well. And Paul's concern, I'm glad he was concerned with it, because otherwise... Christianity uh, could, I'm not saying, you know, obviously God's providence governs all things, but uh, there were uh, people in the first century that thought that Christianity was necessarily only for the Jews, uh, not for the Gentiles. They didn't want to go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel, making disciples among all nations. All right, but I'm very glad that this message of salvation resonated with the Gentile audience and that Paul's concern, that Luke's concern, was to spread the gospel not just to the Jews of the first century, not just to the Romans uh, in the Roman Empire, but also to the Greeks, so that this message of salvation could be transmitted down through the centuries to all of us. All right. Did that, and it's a complicated discussion because it requires uh, some, some suppositions about Greek culture that we're not used to, namely the idea of re reincarnation uh, and this idea of a, a soteriology among Greek culture um, that is foreign to us. Yes, John. Um, I wonder uh, what you say about metempsychosis and great religion is so different from everything I've heard from now. Um, if you might be oversimplifying, the Greeks had um, a, a lot of diversity of, of uh, beliefs. Uh, you know, you all think given said all equally true to the people and stuff like that. Um, the classical mythology was just as bleak as, as you described the weary circle, but in a different way and for a different reason. People would be transported or their souls or some shade or some sort of half, you know, everything except the corpse would be transported to Hades, mm -hmm. which was a kind of Gehenna, it was a place of eternal darkness where they would be sort of locked away forever unless by some dispensation of the gods, they could briefly visit with families back on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, I suspect that may have been an outlook of by, uh, uh, people whose earthly lives are a little nicer than the people who saw the weary cycle. And it had something to do with your sort of socioeconomic level. But um, the end result is the same. Correct. Um, there would be a felt need 
perhaps not a consciously admitted need, but a felt need for some, hmm. for at least from this eternity of, of just, it wasn't, hell wasn't a place of punishment, it was just a place of eternal imprisonment. It was like, it was like Lewis's great divorce. It hmm. was this eternal gray, sunless, <laughs> depressing place where it was always raining. Right. And you're right, there, there, it's not to say that there was a monolithic belief in reincarnation in ancient Greece, but as specifically Pythagoreanism and Orphism were these two uh, theologies that influenced the second century, first century Greek culture uh, as they started to move away uh, from the, the classical mythology of Hades and that sort of thing. At least that's the proposition that's been made. Um, it, it could very well be the case that evidence is uncovered that only 1% of the Greek people believed in reincarnation. I don't think that's the case. I think it was becoming more and more accepted as the Orphists and the Pythagoreans uh, uh, gained power. Uh, and there was a movement in the Greek culture to try and distinguish themselves from the Roman uh, religions. Now, everyone remembers that the Roman religion borrowed from the Greek myths, right? You know, you got uh, Mars instead of uh, Ares. Uh, you've got uh, who? who uh, Zeus and Jupiter. Yeah, right. Zeus and Jupiter. All these, and so uh, as as the Greeks are trying to distinguish themselves from the Roman myths, they're probably also coming up with um, this, this Orphist idea or this Pythagorean idea of of reincarnation, because the Romans didn't have that. Uh, they certainly had ideas of becoming God on Earth, like the Greeks did, um, but they're, the the Jainists uh, bent. Uh, I, don't, I don't see that in any of the Roman Roman religions at all. All right, anything else? I think we got to go. All right, let's uh, let's close the prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your word. Uh, we thank you that uh, you've given it to us to study. We thank you that we can learn more about it. Uh, we thank you that we can. Uh, learn more about you and your church and how you would have us uh, worship you, how you would have us glorify you. We pray that we would take that to heart and that we would continue to do that. Uh, we ask that you would be with uh, Pastor Lewis as he prepares to give us your word uh, in the sermon on this Lord's Day. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.